Father, we just thank you um, that you are in our midst. That as we're going to look at your word tonight, you remind us that your presence is powerful. It works into every uh, aspect of our lives. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That what we could not do, you have already done for us. So Lord, would you help us to see the aspects of our lives that we have yet to apply that type of gospel for. Um, that we have, that we're still striving we're still trying to add our own uh, measure or merit of, of our good works or faith to what you have begun. Lord, help us to see that what you started, you're going to finish. Lord, we simply want to yield to you. And tonight, Holy Spirit, have your, your way in our lives and in our hearts. God, we thank you so much. May your words be multiplied uh, and feed each one of us as we have need. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, Jared, if you'll track with me, I'm going to read through the first section here. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 31. As I mentioned, we're going to be looking at Jesus' Last Supper. Um, this is not this does not mean this is the last dinner that he had. This is literally the Last Supper, the Passover, the last time that the Passover would be observed in that way because Jesus is getting ready to fulfill all of that. And then Peter's denial predicted. So starting off in verse 22, let's read this together. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Verse 23, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. They shared a cup. 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. So this is where he changes a little bit of how they've understood the Passover up until this point. Verse 25, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then we're going to hold off right there. If you'll just wait for a second, um, I want to come back to that. But I believe, uh, as last week Pastor James shared, he, he adequately covered a lot of the Passover. Did anybody miss him talking about the Passover last week? Anybody? My wife, you'll have to get the tape. Um, it's available in the back if you'll see the tape lady at the table. Yes, it's a cassette, um, and you can put that in your cassette player. So basically what, what was covered is how the Passover meal was really a feast of remembrance. And many of the feasts that the Israelites um, observed were simply that, were feasts of celebration and remembrance for the things God had done, recounting his faithfulness. And so the Passover is no different than that. This is in their first month. Uh, typically for us, it's the, I said I was going to sit down. I'll sit down. Oh my goodness. I'm really trying to be disciplined here. So I can still preach. I can sit. But in their first month, typically our March and April, they kick off their feast. They kick off their new year. And the first of these three feasts that will follow in, subs in subsequent order is Passover. This is the first one. And they're remembering the exodus of coming out of Egypt, being slaves, and how God miraculously delivered them. So I am going to stand up only for um, a, a point to, to express to you how they celebrated the Passover. Typically, in Egypt, or as they were leaving, they were told to observe Passover standing up. And they would, they would eat unleavened bread. Both of these are to uh, relate to them the haste with which they are about to leave. 
that they needed to be ready, that they were about to embark on a journey. They needed the unleavened bread. They didn't have time for it to rise. They also, there's a lot of other things that Jesus teaches about leaven, um, you know, not to have impurities mixed in. There's a variety of things that can be interpreted into that. But for their purposes and their understanding, it was with haste that they were getting ready to leave that land. They needed to be prepared and be on the go. So I stand up now and sit back down, okay? So they, they were uh, oftentimes would eat this standing up. They were doing this and observing this in their homes. So in Egypt, they would have that one-year-old lamb sacrificed who was without blemish, who was perfect. And we even, uh, I know Pastor James shared about the day that that was even chosen, how many days before Passover would be observed on a regular basis. Uh, that was the day that we believe that also Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that there was, this, there was this relationship between understanding the lamb that was sacrificed before, and here was the lamb of God. Behold, as John said, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so there was a lot of relationship that we understand how Jesus is fulfilling what they have remembered for years, for years. And so while it may have been observed, you think about Christmas over the years, you think about one of your holidays, how birthdays have even changed in your family or how, uh, you know, we used to get gifts for everybody, but now we draw names or, you know, there's, there's things that just they ebb and flow in your own family's tradition. And it was no different than it was for the Passover. So where they would begin uh, in observing it with standing up and remembering the haste with which they left, um, and they would do it in their homes, uh, and they would put the, you know, the blood, they would remember the blood over the doorpost, uh, because the angel literally passed over the homes of the Israelites who observed this as the firstborn of the Egyptians were all slaughtered and killed by the angel of death. Now, there's such a distinguishing um, feature here of how God was the protector, that blood was the protector between what, what judgment was bringing death, but yet the blood preserved and, and kept life. And so there, that is what we are under. We are under this covenant um, of the greatest lamb of all time, the one who truly removes everything that sin has even purchased, death, um, and has removed that from our own doorpost. It is no longer something that enters into our lives. So what was observed as a family in a home, it transpired and became observed uh, in different contexts. It, it, it would be observed in, in groups and community. It would be something that you would maybe even go to temple once it was erected and observe there. But at this point, they would, they would again observe it uh, in parts and in pieces. The Passover meal, this last supper, would be, would be done with friends and family who were of like mind, who were of same faith. And so they didn't stand at this point. Uh, it is believed that in Jesus' time, most of them reclined, uh, meaning that they would sit on a, on a carpet or rug uh, on the floor, and their legs would be behind them, and they would you know, lean on an elbow at a lower table. Have you, have any, has anyone ever had to eat on the ground like that because you didn't have chairs or you were in a different culture? When I was in Japan, that's the way we ate when we were there, but this was a cultural custom at that point. And so for Jesus and his guys, you see um, Da Vinci's painting is in my mind. I see everybody's on the same side because it would make a terrible photo if anyone had their backs to you, right? So everyone's on the same side. And, and so they're all looking at the camera, so to speak. And there they are. They're, they're on the ground at the table. Jesus, of course, has got the long flowing hair, unlike the Jesus that, that Rick was talking about on Sunday, right? Yeah, no crew cut Jesus. This is the real Jesus. Will he stand up? Well, no, he's sitting down right now. So there they are lounging at the table, observing Passover, this last meal. But Jesus, in all of this context, begins to rewrite 
how these guys have celebrated their entire life. They've done this year after year after year. Peter's been to a dozen or more Passover celebrations. He's done this with his family. He's done this with other people from the synagogue. Matthew has done this before. Thomas, this is nothing new. Even Judas has been a part of these Passover celebrations and understands what he understands about it. But Jesus is about to change the way that they understand Passover forever. And so I want to paint a little bit of understanding. There are a few verses for me that allow us to look at the rest of Scripture through a lens theologically that changes the context of how we understand those scriptures. Trey, are you playing a game back there? I'm just kidding. Who was that? Raise your hand right now. (laughs) Sorry, Sabrina. I didn't mean to point you out. I didn't know it was you. I wouldn't have said nothing. (laughs) I I even used incorrect English. Okay, so here we go. Revelation 13, 8 is one of those verses. I'm going to, as he's pulling this up, I'm going to make mention of, and I'm going to stand up because I feel like it's important. I'm going to make mention of Colossians 1 is another one of those verses that talks about how in him and through him and to him are all things. To me, that is a verse through which we look through the rest of scripture and we understand how all things are in Christ. They are all going through Christ and back to him. And so if there are things that we preach in theology that can't be applied that way, that don't come in Christ, through Christ, and back to him, then theologically it, should, it may not be sound. This is one of the things that I think this verse right here, Revelation 13, 8, helps us interpret the rest of Scripture as we understand God's dynamic plan. I've brought this up before, and so I think it is very important that I'm bringing it up a second time. Peter says... You can never be reminded too much, right? And so here it is, Revelation 13. Now, this is the uh, Mount's translation. Uh, all And all those living on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, who was slain from the foundation of the world. I want to look at the Phillips as well, J.B. Phillips. He, sa- he puts it this way. I'm giving you some obscure translations. These are really good ones, though. I love these translations. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship it, and all those whose names have not been written in the book of life, which belongs to the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. The the difficulty we have in the English translation are all these participles. Uh, prepositions right here. You have of life, which belongs to the lamb. This right here actually would have another one in front of it, the one of which was slain. There are so many uh, in the original language that it's hard to really piece this all together. And I was really curious because this verse to me is extremely important on how we understand the rest of scripture. Would you put up the King James 21st century version? This is fun. You guys probably have never read this translation. Have y'all heard of the KJ 21? It's, it's an interesting one. It's actually, uh, it's like the NIV, basically. <laughs> I don't know how the King James got to us in the modern day language, but it has. So verse seven and following. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. I actually really like this translation. It's a, it's a really good translation of it. So finally, why am I reading it in so many translations? Well, ultimately, let's look at this final one. And if, uh, Joseph, would you read this for us? Go ahead and put up that next translation. I'll have you read this. Go ahead and read that. Uh, go ahead. So everybody can hear you real loud. I can give you the microphone. So we're really just going to look at the last half of this. 
Um, and why I put up the Greek up here is because it's really important to me if this was in there or not that, that the original manuscripts talk about him being slain from the foundations of the world. Because to me, this is the only verse that I know of that talks about how, how God's original intent was redemption before anything was created. And I want you to um, get a couple of things from this translation, uh, which Joseph is going to read for us in a minute. Um, we'll give him some time to look at it. I'm just kidding. Would you, would you pull up the second half? Because it's really the, the second half of the verse that I want to focus on. This is the second half. It is Greek, isn't it? So, who geg rap raptai ta anama atu into biblio. There you go. Hey, you got that one right? Biblio, right? Into the book teha zoes, that is of life, to arniru, of him, of who had been slain. The one from before. This is a katabales. That's one word. I broke it up here. Uh, katabales, cosmu. You, y'all, y'all getting cosmo, cosmos there? Cosmos, the world. So I want to break down some of these words for you because to me, I think these are really, really important for us to understand why Christ was already slain. And so how is this in the context of the Passover? Because Jesus is about to disclose to him that this was the plan from the very beginning. That this was the plan. So I want you to hear a couple of of these words um, that talk about to slay or to slaughter. The slaughter before the foundation, or as the word you're going to see here in a minute, actually means the insemination of the world. Before the world ever had a foundation or had been birthed or thought of, it had already been done and decided that this was God's plan. So the first word um, that I want to I talk about is how it says that he had been slain, slaughtered, literally butchered. The same thing that a lamb would go through. It is that intentional word. It is a death by violence with a mortal wound. This is what it says the lamb of God would go through. Apo meaning from. And that word, katabales, it literally means to throw. Kata, it means to put alongside. This is two, two words that the Greek um, kind of smushes together. And to, um, baleo is the verb, I throw. Literally to throw something alongside. And so when you put it together, it means to literally put something alongside, to lay some foundations, or it can talk about how it literally means the injection or depositing of a semen in the womb. And he relates this to the foundations, the insemination of the world, the cosmos. So before, before the world had ever been inseminated, thought of, even the foundations laid, this was God's plan. So this is before Genesis 1.1. This is well before the spirit is hovering over the deep. This is well before uh, day one, day two, day three would occur, right? This is infinity and beyond, as Buzz Lightyear would tell us, right? Infinity and beyond. So to me, this is one of those passages through which we read the rest of Scripture and understand how in the world was this God's plan A? How in the world? Through all of this. And so this is what makes me understand all of the types and shadows of the Old Covenant, that they were pointing towards this, towards before the foundation of the world, the Lamb 
would fulfill, would wrap up. He would be the surmise of all these things in the flesh. And that he would do this by becoming one of us. And so now from the, from the garden to the covenants, to the requirements of the law and the celebrations of remembrance, they're all undergirded with this theme of how God has this grand plan of redemption. This tells us something about the God we serve, about the God who is revealing himself to Moses as the great I am, the one who is living, but yet he has this plan of redeeming. Redeeming what was lost in that garden in the cool of the day, and the Passover is the, is the key process through which we understand that. So here in Mark 14, 22, Jesus is instating the Lord's Supper in remembrance of his final sacrifice. Now, the New Testament, real quick, just a little bit of history, it gives four accounts of the Lord's Supper. You would think that they would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and what? Well, you're wrong. I tricked you. That was mean, I know. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John does not record it. Corinthians. Paul writes to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. And that's where we actually get that term, the Lord's Supper. Um, he's the one that really instated that. And we have an account in Matthew and Mark that are very, very similar. They're the ones that he takes the cup, he gives thanksgiving, or I'm sorry, he takes the bread, gives thanksgiving or a blessing, breaks it, and then passes it out, recognizing it as his body. So Matthew and Mark are both the ones that kind of give a similar scenario. But then Luke and Corinthians are very similar. Their audiences are, I believe, the reason for that context. And so now we see that in verse 22 here, while they were eating, Jesus did a few things. He took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. So as I mentioned before, this was most likely unleavened bread. It was flat. Uh, it was to kick off the Jewish season of feast because Passover was immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread for which they would remember that whole journey through which they left Egypt. The haste implied in the unleavened bread, uh, not having the impurities of the things of this world, the things that had kept them in captivity. They were no longer to even desire the things of Egypt. So this unleavened bread had so many connotations for them that God had commanded the Israelites to take bread or cakes without leaven when they left Egypt and when, because they would not have time to wait for their meal to rise and be prepared. They had to basically dine and dash. All right. This is the first dine and dash. And pastor, we're not talking about not paying for your bill. This is because they, um, they were going to be expedited out of the land of slavery. God, the work he does in us in salvation is an expedited work. What he does in our heart and soul, it may not be an instantaneous deliverance for everyone, meaning all the baggage we came into it with, but that forgiveness and the power of God that enters our life is instantaneous. It is an imminent process that is near us and it happens quickly. It happens quickly. And so with them going into this process, this is when Jesus is taking this food uh, and giving it thanks. He literally, there's two Greek verbs translated here, give thanks in verse 22 and 23. Both are equivalent to the Hebrew to bless or to praise. We bless this substance that God has given us to remember. It would be equivalent to the Hebrew of Barak, Barakata Adonai. If you've ever been to synagogue, that you would hear that over and over and over. Barakata Adonai is they're doing their prayers. Bless the Lord. And so here, they understand what Jesus is doing. It is in the context of what they're used to. 
And at Passover, there was a blessing for the bread that immediately preceded the meal itself. And it went like this. And I believe what Jesus gave was much like this. It was a, a custom. Praise be thou, O Lord, sovereign of the, of the world, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. This was the customary blessing that they would have over the unleavened bread. And this was typically well into the meal. And here they are now giving thanks for what God has done for them in the past, giving uh, remembrance. So this was kind of a third breaking, so to speak. And they're getting ready to have a, 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 a third cup. You know, they've already shared a meal. They've had multiple blessings. But this is the one where they're, they're embarking on this remembrance. They're doing something physically, but they're also mentally and spiritually remembering what God has done. They're giving intentionality to that. And so after, after this blessing that I believe Jesus gave, he tells his disciples this, these words that is out of the norm. This is my body. And I believe this statement should be understood independently of the cup. The significant action of Jesus was the distribution of the bread, not its breaking. The bread represented his body, his abiding presence, promised to the disciples on even the eve of his crucifixion. And so the words become a pledge of the real presence of Jesus wherever and whenever his his followers will celebrate this supper. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't say as often as you get together, and I think that's intentional. Uh, He doesn't regulate how often this should be observed, but as often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. It is no longer in remembrance of Egypt. It is no longer just in remembrance of how God was faithful to us in the past. It is in remembrance of the true Lamb of God that has taken away the sins of the world, has fulfilled this Passover shadow. Listen to this quote reflecting on the Lord's desire in this process. By means of the supper here instituted, the church should remember his sacrifice and love him, should reflect on that sacrifice and embrace him by faith, and should look forward in living hope to his glorious return. Surely the proper celebration of communion is a loving remembrance. It is, however, more than that. Jesus Christ is most certainly and through his spirit most actively present at this genuine feast. The difference and the reason that that the verb here is, um, it is literally the word from which we get the Eucharist and why we call it that, it is that he is present with us in this meal. He is with us. And so for us to partake of that is to remember that what he has done has become a part of us, that we are his body, that he is the head And we do this not just in remembrance mentally, but to spiritually we're aligning ourselves again with the one who is the head of all things, Jesus. And I believe that as you study, if you study the Passover and if you study God's presence, the the Lord's Supper is one of the most powerful things we can do in observation of that. I don't believe that it is... um, It is a sacrament in the sense that it literally becomes Jesus' flesh and that that wine literally becomes Jesus' blood. I I don't believe that that's necessarily what the scriptures would tell us. But I believe there is such importance that uh, even as my Catholic brothers and sisters would emphasize that there is a divine grace that is exchanged in this remembrance. 
there is a faith that is that is that is given seed to in this remembrance because Christ is with us. Brother Lawrence writes a book called The Practice of His Presence. And if you ever get a chance to read it, it's a very short book. And it's just talking about the continual lifestyle that we live of remembering Christ. And the Lord's Supper is one of the most powerful ways that we can do that. You know, Smith Wigglesworth was a, um, he was an Englishman, plumber by trade, and uh, one of the great preachers and revivalists of his day. He saw miracles happen, but he was rough. He was a plumber, Tara. He was a plumber, you know, if you know any rough people like that, right? Maybe your father-in-law even. So he would, he would literally, when he would have his, his preaching ceremonies, he would, he would have people come up that maybe had a tumor in their stomach, and he wasn't your typical, you know, pray with them and anoint them. He would wail back and punch them in the stomach, and they would fly a few rows. But when they got up, that tumor was gone. And he was asked this. He was asked, Smith, how do you see such miracles and see such power of God. And his, his answer was this. He said, well, my secret is I never pray more than 30 minutes a day. And they're like, oh, okay. I've got this. This is great. Good answer. But I never go more than 30 minutes without praying. What he was talking about was practicing the presence of God, always staying in communion with him. And it, whether it's through the Lord's Supper or whether it's through our constant mindfulness we can remember Christ is with us. Christ is in us. He has given us the victory. We can renew our mind. This is something that we can put into practice and to walk out and see great things in our lives. I'm not recommending that you punch anybody in the stomach because they have a tumor. You need to hear from God. But we can walk in that, in that, in that way that we are so in tune, that we're so in tune with what he is saying, that we're not missing a beat. What did Jesus say? I only do that which I see my father doing. My, my will, when they came back, and here he is talking to this lady getting water who's a Samaritan at the well. Jesus, aren't you hungry? We just went and got some lunch, and you're doing this? Are you serious? You're about to screw up the whole ministry. Pretty sure Judas is going to go ahead and get rid of the funds because we're going down. They caught you talking to a Samaritan and a woman at the well. This is going to be on the headlines. This is tabloids of Jerusalem right here. And so they, they ask him, and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? He's like, you, I'm not hungry. I don't, I don't need the food you brought me because the, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And when we find our sustenance and our abiding life is in him, in him alone, then we need nothing else. And so when we eat of that wafer and we drink of that, that juice, we realize that this is the life and this is all we need. He gives us life to everything that we are. So we look at, behold, uh, the blood of the covenant. And he talks about my blood of the covenant. Literally is echoing Exodus 24, 8. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And the Greek word used here is literally a testament or will. It's translating literally the, the Hebrew word for covenant. It is that relationship of lordship and obedience which God establishes between himself and men. And the blood of the covenant is the sign of its existence in the means by which it is affected. And so the word Jesus used here, this new covenant, I think, I think this was probably one of the first times that, that Peter and John's ears were like, the what, the new covenant? What we've heard Jeremiah 
prophesied about in Jeremiah 31, that there would be this new era. We're waiting for this Messiah that will instate this new covenant, this better order. And yet you're telling us it's coming through this observation of the Passover? This doesn't add up, Jesus. I thought you were going to overthrow the Romans. I thought the clubs were going to be in our hands instead of theirs. I thought your kingdom was physical, not spiritual. And so they're, they're having some light bulbs, I believe, go on for the first time that this blood of the new covenant was being poured out for many. And so instead of the Romans shedding their blood for this new order, it's Jesus saying, no, it's, it's actually going to be mine. It's actually going to be my blood, and it's establishing a new kingdom, a new order, a new way of doing things. Even John Calvin would recognize in this quote, by the word many, he means not a part of the world only, but the whole human race would be redeemed by this new covenant. The blood of this new covenant, which is shed for many, for all, it is inclusive. We have a God that is inclusive before inclusive was hip because he died for all. And yet there is only one name in his inclusivity. He is still the only path by which men can be saved. There's not redemption in anyone else's blood, not in the blood of, of goats or bulls or, in, or in, an offering to an Asherah pole or a bell or, or be it a Hindu God. There is no other name by which man can be saved according to Acts chapter 4. So we move on to, to verse 25 and 26. Solemnly, Jesus declares that this would be his last uh, festal meal with them till the dawn of the messianic kingdom. And they're already thinking about this new order when he's talking about this new covenant. And he's saying, I'm not going to drink of this type of, of wine again. I'm not going to celebrate what I am doing now until I celebrate it on that day with all those that have benefited from it. The drink of the cup at the supper anticipates the perfected fellowship of that age and I believe is talking about his coming again for us, that parousia. His sacrificial death would literally also hold out the promise of victory and salvation. He's talking about how one day we will be reunited and what we are seeing today will not be tasted again because this is the once and for all sacrifice. As Paul would write in Romans, I'm reminded of, because of one man's sin, all have fallen. But because of one man's death, all are forgiven. We are reaping what the one man's death has now done to reverse the one man's sin. And while we may be born into that, there is also the fact that we are born again. And the reverse of the curse is true in our lives. And so he's assuming the meal to have been um, a Passover meal here, and it's ended, I believe, with, with a hymn. Mark is writing that there's a hymn, and this was customary um, of the second part of the Hallel, which would have been Psalms 114 through 118, typically. And so they're probably in the latter half of this, and I think about how they're going to sing this hymn, these psalms together. Signif significant that Jesus would, is, is on his way to Gethsemane, and the agony with which those promises are following. Here, here's what it says in Psalms 18, 118, I'm sorry, verses 14 through 17. They sang this together. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. 
Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. This is the closing verses. Uh, just, just as Psalm 118 is kind of coming to an end, this is the end of that hymn. And Jesus is collecting his thoughts as he's about to go to the garden. As he's about to go off and, and he knows the cross is before him. He knows that he can revel in what God is about to do, even though it is coming through the agony of his own death. That is a powerful thing. Let's look at these last verses here, uh, Jared. I know everybody's falling asleep, and I am too. Um, let's put up verse 27 through 31. He jumps straight into these next verses. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Verse 29, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Yep, I've said that before. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, oh yeah, even tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. 31, our last verse together. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others like, oh yeah, me too. I'm not disowning you, Jesus. Maybe, maybe that other guy will. Hang on, iOS 11, remind me later. Stop, stop messing with me. So the, the, sacri- the, the sacrifice has moved from Jesus's to yours. It has said that because of what's about to happen to me, you guys are going to scatter. And this did happen. We saw it as Jesus is headed towards the cross. After Gethsemane, where are those guys? You can't even find them. I'm not even sure where. You know, you see a couple of the ladies. They're still following Jesus. Thanks for the women of grace. Y'all are still hanging strong. But the men, they're, no, they're nowhere to be seen. You can't find John, the beloved. I mean, he's, he's gone. Scarce. They're, they're saying literally in the crowds, I don't know this guy. What do you mean? Just because I'm from the same area, now I'm with him? What are you, what are you talking about? And they're saying, no, 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 Jesus, we're not going to do that. I cannot tell you how many times I have found myself in a place that I swore I would never be. Maybe a season in my life, maybe a, a place financially, maybe in relationships. Uh, I, I thought this would never happen to me. And then you find yourself there, and it is like a rooster crowing, and Jesus has predicted it. Because you've spoken that. And I think that, that we see in those moments that our need for God's grace, even if he can predict them, our need for his grace our need for his grace. We've just experienced that his presence is with us. His forgiveness is for the age to come. And yet we need to remember it in the next moment of our own life. The predictions here as they are leaving the upper room and headed to the Mount of Olives, literally that, that verb to fall away, uh, it's difficult to translate, but I believe just to scatter is what we're going to see. And he quotes Zechariah there. Uh, saying that how once they strike the shepherd, you know, the sheep are going to be scattered. And he's obviously talking about Jesus being struck down, that the disciples, the sheep, would, would be, be nowhere to be found. And so from Zechariah 13, 7, we indicate that the death of Jesus is the result of the action of God and that it results in the scattering of the sheep. The prediction was fulfilled. The disciples were fear, fearful to be identified with him in his trial and especially during his death. And that caused some of them to literally deny him. And of course, we know it was true of Peter. But after the death of the shepherd, 
There seems to be this glorious resurrection reunion that Jesus is predicting here and that he's going to gather his sheep back together in Galilee. And that's where I believe um, this is not only a reference to his appearing after the resurrection, but in the age to come, in his second coming, when he will, when he will gather his elect back together as we've looked at in previous chapters. But it's definitely about that post-resurrection appearance. And so as Jesus predicts the failure on the part of the disciples, it was just too much for Peter to accept. For the other disciples, it may come true, but not for him. He's emphatic. And Jesus, is, his response is, you don't get it. Today, yes, tonight. The denial is not only certain, it is imminent. It is going to happen. And so the repeated denial three times, in spite of a warning twice repeated, the, the crow of the rooster, he will still deny him. And so tonight in, in, in understanding how, how are these to, to flesh out in our life, regardless of our level of denial, regardless of the areas in our heart that we may not be fleshing out the presence of Jesus, let us remember together that he is with us. Let us remember that he is in our midst, that he is in us, that he is that all things are in him and through him and will be back to him, including our own lives. And so even after failure, we can come back and see him as the risen king. He will gather us back together. He's not going to leave us in our state of denial, confusion, or even regret and remorse. He doesn't leave us in our shame. But instead, in Christ, there is no condemnation. He lifts that from us with his own countenance. He walks with us on that road from Emmaus. He, dis- he discloses himself to us, and our hearts are burning within us. If we will come to him and remember, remember what the Lord has done for us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that even in just a verse-by-verse passage, we can see your hand.